may be seated. That's great. Come now, Almighty King. You know, for 2,000 years, Christians have been waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. And in these days of, uh, I don't know, intense news cycles, some Christians think that the, the day must be getting soon. It must be speeding upon us. And that may be true. It could be true. I'd like you to uh, turn again to Romans chapter 3. Today we're going to be considering an important part of Paul's teaching here to the Romans. I would have loved to have been in that congregation when, when those men and women received this this letter, the, the, the advantage and, and the wisdom and the knowledge of, of Paul by God's appointment, God appointing him a, a prophet and, and an apostle to speak and teach these words is really, really astonishing. It's amazing the things we, we learn here. I'm going to ask the Lord for His help for just a moment, and then I'm going to um, I'm going to be reading from verse nine this morning. Okay, so let's let's pray. Great, mighty God of of time past and and God of the present. How we pray for ears to hear. And we pray for minds to be able to comprehend. God, would your spirit give understanding as we read these words this morning, as we rejoice to contemplate the greatness of the gospel that has been offered to people like us. How we thank you, God, and we ask for your help. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Savior, we pray. Amen. From 3.9, this question you've already been asked a couple times. He, he says at 3.9, what then are we better than they? And you all know the answer, no, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
In the way of peace, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, it's a really crucial part of the gospel. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And what he didn't say, but what is implicit there, what he didn't say is, since by the law is the knowledge of sin, the law is not how someone could be saved. Salvation is a great mystery in many ways to the men and women who first heard the gospel. One of the great mysteries of the gospel that, that very, very few anticipated until it had begun to unfold in Jerusalem was how the gospel was offered to both Jews and Gentiles. That is why the the subject of Jew and Gentile is repeated so often already in this letter to the Romans. It was just a shocking thing for people to realize that the Jews, the people of God, the Israelites, the people of Abraham, were not the only ones to be offered God's favor and eternal life. This was really, really shocking news to Jews and Gentiles alike. And I know I've said it before, but in case you've never heard me say this, make a note in your Bible. When when Paul speaks about the all that we are running into, even already here in Romans, he means Jews and Gentiles. All of them are offered forgiveness in the gospel. It's a really crucial, crucial thing to understand about the gospel. The gospel offers rescue from the wrath of God. That's why Paul is not ashamed to preach the gospel. Back in 1, 16, 17, 18, we're introduced to why it is he's speaking the gospel. He, he's offering rescue from the wrath of God by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is preached to sinners. And one of the things that really even strikes me and, and, and it impacts my heart is that in some ways, Sometimes sin is only theoretical to you and I. Sometimes sin is, is like an academic thing. We don't necessarily contemplate what sin is about doing right now or today. What is the power of sin? What is the reality of sin? And so we sort of think about sin as being something theoretical, and yet the scriptures of old, you know, this letter is so old, and even the scriptures before that that we looked at last week, several references, ancient scriptures speaking about sin, help us to understand a right understanding of sin 
here in this letter, we'll stay confined in this letter, and I'm just going to, three bullet points, what is this letter showing you? What is it? How do we know it's legit? How do we know it is a for real thing? The first thing that was shown to you is, what does man think about God? Well, they didn't acknowledge him as God. They didn't acknowledge his deity. They didn't give him any thanks. That's the first example given in this book of the sinfulness of man. That's what sin is. Men not having hearts to worship their creator and to worship his favor for us. The second thing we were shown is there were certain things made manifest to men about God, like his eternality and what Romans called his glory. And men decided that those weren't important to them. In the mind, in the heart of men, they could see this manifestation of God and and it didn't interest them. They turned away from it. This was the second testimony. The conscience was given this image and this conception of God. All men were given this and they frittered it away. What did they want instead of the glory of God, you remember? They, they turned to images made by human hands. They looked to created things instead of the creator. That was the second thing that was shown to us as, as an explanation of what sin is. And then the third one, in the end of Romans chapter 1, listed examples of what Paul called reprobation. Do you guys remember reprobation? The end of chapter 1, I'll read you just a, a couple of examples of what he said. Here's how Paul's reasoning went. Listen carefully. Paul said, as men turned away from the Creator... And as they invested their hearts and their interests and their passions and their, their, their affections, as they pursued these things instead, the scripture said he gave them over. This is what reprobation is. Look at verse, um, I think it starts in 29. It says, uh, a general one is unrighteousness. They were filled with unrighteousness in verse 29. They were filled with Sexual immorality. They were filled with wickedness. They were filled with covetousness. That list at the end of chapter 1 is a list of, they're symptomatic of reprobation. You know what that means? What's one of the symptoms of COVID? Early on, yeah, that's, that's a general one, fever. One of the early on ones is a weird taste in your mouth, right? Or maybe you can't taste. I haven't had COVID yet, so I've, I don't know which one it is. It affects your taste, right? And and if you're kind of wondering, man, maybe, maybe I have COVID. Someone who's had it before is going to say, how's your taste? Can you taste things? And if you're like, no, my, my mouth tastes really weird. It tastes like metal. That's symptomatic of your COVID. They're going to say, you probably have it. The end of Romans chapter 1 lists these symptoms of reprobation. What that means is, according to Paul's definitions and what he's explaining, he says, as men have turned and begun to do this, that is an example of being in a state of judgment already. 
This is evidence. This is proof of your sinfulness, the reality of sin and its work among men. That's why it said in Romans 3, 9 here, What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged, or as it says in the King James, we have previously proved. We've already proved. We've already demonstrated. We've charged. We've explained. And in part, he's referring to what these three points are that I just mentioned to you. He's proved this. He's he's demonstrated this already. So at Romans 3.10, at Romans 3.10, we're going to see a similar kind of list. So the end of chapter 1 gives you these symptoms of reprobation, examples of sin and sinfulness. Romans 3.10 does something similar. Again, we would say sin is not theoretical. Sin is a real thing and its impact on man and on humanity is visible. It's, it's knowable. So, what appears to be the main victim of sin? As we've read, these two or this one beginning line of our passage here this morning... Are we any better than they? Not at all. We've all previously charged both Jews and Greeks. My Bible says they are under sin. Who or what appears to be the main victim of sin? Jews and Greeks, all people, all of humanity. Everybody is his point, is the victim of sin. Where where is it touched? What is it corrupted? Who has been affected by it? Men. Period. And right on the front end, what I'll tell you is sin has ruined men. It's ruined them. But men just struggle coming to grips with this reality. But the corruption where the ruination is real. And and this is what he's going on to explain here in this section of Romans 3. As previously charged, he says they're all under sin. And the first thing mentioned in Romans chapter 1 that was an example of this Ruination, uh, an example of the reality of it was man's relationship to God. The first illustration he gave in chapter 1 had to do with what men think about their conceptions of, of God. Well, we see the same thing taking place here in chapter 3. Look at verse 10. As it is written... There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. 
No, not one. When Paul wrote this, he is doing a similar thing here as to what he did in chapter 1. This is more specifically geared to the Jewish mind, the Jewish understanding of what it would mean to be impacted by sin, what it would mean to be infected by sin. And so these first couple of lines here actually come out of the 14th Psalm. So turn to the 14th Psalm. As we think about sin and its true impact on men, what it has done to men, we look at Psalm 14. Now you'll notice that this psalm says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Most of the psalms tell you who wrote it and what it is for. And the psalm begins, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. John Calvin commented on this passage and I thought it was such a great observation that I wanted to share it with you. It's a very, very short statement. David David is a man who was known to the nation of Israel and he's known to you and I as a man who was after God's own heart. That was his reputation. <laughs> David is truly one of the great examples of a good king, right? He was a, a wonderful Flawed, of course, he was a man, but he was a great godly king. So Calvin says, here is this man who is a man after God's own heart. And he, by the spirit, we know that David is a David is a prophet. He says, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, among whom David is, right? The great king, the godly king, is is truly among the exceptional men in his sins or in his flaws. He's certainly a great man, but God looks down on even David among these men to see if there are any who understand, to see if any who seek God. How many have turned aside according to David? All. All have turned aside. David's reflection in the spirit is this absolute condemnation or this absolute exposing of all men. All men have turned aside. All men have turned away 
which would mean including David, they've all become corrupt. There's none who do good. Not one. None seek the Creator. None understand. Now this is the Spirit's declaration about the state of the heart of men by King David. And Paul is reminding his audience, who is a mixed audience over the ages, Jews and Gentiles alike, the mixed audience. Some Christians are listening to this at times. Some non-Christians are reading or listening to this at times. And, and God says, all are under sin and none seek the Creator. And the thing is here, and the important thing is here, is that the Jew cannot argue against the psalm. The Jew can't read this and say, well, that's for the bad Jews. That's for the especially sinful Jews. You notice the words here that don't allow any exceptions? Have you seen those words there? Look at your Bible again. How many righteous? None. And just to make sure it's clear, no, not one. So what does that make them? Unrighteous. Who is the wrath of God coming against in Romans 1.18? The ungodly and the unrighteous. The words are absolute. How many understand according to verse 11? None. Do you understand what Paul is getting at when he speaks? When he says no one understands, there is none who seeks after God. Do you realize what he is going after in your mind and in your heart? Men find themselves, all men and women find themselves comfortable and confident with what they know. They look out into the future, they contemplate the end of the age, they ponder on the meaning of life, and and they can rest enough. They feel fine knowing what they know. And Paul here is saying by the Spirit, all the way from Psalm 14, they do not understand. In other words, if you could be transported into what you don't know, in terms of who is the God he speaks of, he says there's no one who seeks after God. There's nobody doing what you would have to do to get there or to know him. Nobody seeks, nobody understands. If you were to be transported to that place miraculously somehow, and it can't be done, you have to wait until the end of the age for you to be able to see what is to come. But if you could get there and if you could comprehend what you don't comprehend, it would utterly blow you away. And so the charge is that nobody understands. They don't understand. And you know what that makes you dependent on? It makes you dependent on God. It makes you dependent on the revelation of God. You can't guess because nobody understands. 
The, the effect is crushing because it puts us so far away from knowing what we think we know until we come to Christ. The psalm concludes that all together are corrupt. All have turned aside. Together have become unprofitable. What's the opposite of unprofitable? Profit. Do you want to be unprofitable to God? Or do you want to be profitable to God? The point of him saying they are altogether unprofitable is a statement of their worthlessness. It's a statement of what do you want in the kingdom and what do you not want in the kingdom? Do you want to invite in the doors of the kingdom worthlessness? Unprofitable worthlessness in your kingdom would would be the same as bringing unprofitableness and and worthlessness into your home. Do you open the door to unprofitableness? That means you're opening the door to loss. Is that what you do in your home? You guard your home against loss. You guard your life against unprofitableness. He says all of humanity, Jews and Greeks alike, they become unprofitable. And there's none who does good. Not one. One of the things he explained here, or I shouldn't say he explained it because he didn't really explain it. He just said it. When you look at the end of verse 9, he said that they are all under sin. All under sin. Under sin means subservient. Under sin means it is over. And I think probably for much of my life, I would have imagined sin to be passive. Sin is the occasional thing that you maybe slip up and say. You say something you shouldn't have said. Or you accidentally did a bad or a mean thing. But as we noted here, the passage says that men are under sin. So it's not the thing they occasionally trip over. It actually is the thing that is over them. And I think what you discover as you as you grow in your knowledge of God's Word, as you grow in your own attempt to walk according to what you are learning is true about God, what you're learning is right and pleasing to the Lord, what you learn is even you as a Christian find yourself stumbling over sin that is inside you. Sin is not passive. Sin is something directing Men. So being subject to sin creates this reality that David has described in, in the beginning of these lines that we read in the psalm. Being subject to sin creates this reality. 
It creates this worthlessness. It creates this unprofitableness. If someone is subject to sin, it makes him unrighteous. It makes him worthless. It means that sin is the master. It means that men obey sin. And it means that the life resulting from this, the life resulting from being under sin, Look at David's words again. This is what it means. It means that there is none righteous. The person who's under sin, let's call it the king of sin. If sin is the king, the person who is under this king cannot be righteous. He has no understanding. He has no profitableness. He has no goodness. And I think in some ways everybody understands these truths. Try to focus here. Try to stay with me. Some of you think back and remember a time when you're unconverted even. Did you sometimes have a sense that some of the stupid and wicked things that you would do, you almost had no choice but to do them? You almost felt like you were enslaved by some things in your life and you didn't know how to be free from them. Can you think of a time before you came to Christ where this might have been true of your life? I think in some ways we we know and understand this. And there are some ways where we don't quite understand its power. We don't quite understand sin's influence. Many religious people who aren't Christians, or many do-gooders or good deed-doers, however you might want to put it, would understand their good deeds as good. Non-Christians can do good deeds and go, I did a good thing. That was a good thing that I did. Maybe they consider their help at the food bank as a as a good thing and, and something easily recognizable as good. Or maybe they would consider the prayer they offered at Thanksgiving dinner as something that was sincere and something that was good. Or maybe maybe this unbeliever had recently quit drinking alcohol. They no longer consider themselves under under the slavery of alcohol. And they would say, that was a good thing I did. I I finally got out, out of it. And they could see that, or they would see that as a virtue. And so what I want to ask you here is we think about this kind of person or these kinds of quote-unquote good things. Is the Spirit saying here in this passage in Romans, is the Spirit saying that these two are under sin? Are these people who, who quit drinking? Are they still under sin? Because it's easy for you and I to imagine the worst kind of people in Romans 3, 10 and following. The worst kinds of people. It's hard for you and I to imagine what we consider to be examples of of good citizens as being in this list. Is the wrath of God against the guy who finally quit alcohol last week or last month? It's an important question. This is a great gospel 
question, what does the scripture say about good deeds and kind works of the unbelieving? Are those people who would do that still under sin? Are they servants of sin? Is sin their master? You need to look at Ephesians 2.8 to help answer this question. As we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to prepare your mind to redefine what you understand as good deeds and good works in the gospel sense. When Ephesians 2 speaks about salvation, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith about your sin. Faith about your need for a Savior. Faith about your belief in the death and the resurrection of Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now look at verse 10 very carefully. We are his workmanship. Ephesians is a letter written to Christians. And very specifically, we're speaking about people who are born again here. The person who has been born again, the Christian is saying in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Who is the master of the Christian? Christ. We are what he has made. The Christian has been made by the master. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Christian, if you do a good deed this afternoon, is it, can, can, you, can you claim credit or merit for your good deed? In a sense, you could. You could be near the hands of the Lord. But whose good deed was it? God's. Where did the good deed come from? He prepared it in, in advance. Now, maybe you'll be walking along to this good deed and see it and go, oh, man, I don't want to do that good deed again. There's a, there are times when there is something the Lord will put before you to do and you will feel like, ah, I don't like that good deed. I don't like being generous to that person. I don't, I don't like helping that person. I don't like having to serve God in that way. Now that is a failure of your faith. That's not walking by faith. That's you pulling yourself back out of God's service. Now when an unbeliever steps into a, a good deed of some kind, and he does this good deed, whatever it is, is it the kind of thing that God is going to look at and go, wow, I'm, I'm going to reward that person's good deed? Is it the kind of thing that the Lord is going to reward for them? No. What if, what if they say, God, I, I quit alcohol last year? Of course, you and I would acknowledge there are benefits, there are many benefits to leaving certain sins, certain sinful patterns, but they are not good deeds that God is going to recognize or that God can recognize. 
Because if you look at Isaiah 64, you'll remember Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We are all as an unclean thing. Now Isaiah, of course, is a man whose trust and hope is in the Messiah. Isaiah is anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah is a faithful servant of God. But Isaiah says we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. Now look, read this last part carefully. Stay with me. Read that last part again. What does it say? And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. What does Isaiah say that sins are doing? What are sins doing? They lead, don't they? They rule, don't they? So Isaiah says our best, our best deeds, our best works, they're as filthy rags. And our sins are still leading us. Isaiah is a man of faith. So what is Isaiah's hope regarding his sins? Stopping them and presenting himself pure before God, is that his hope? No. He's hoping in the Messiah. He's waiting for the Messiah to forgive him of his sins. His best deeds, his righteous deeds are his filthy rags. So fascinating to see that Isaiah speaks about iniquities taking us away. So good works and prayer and faith that is pleasing to God is walking in the works that God has prepared for you and I to do. Those things are pleasing when we walk and live by faith. But our our works are like Isaiah's. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The only righteousness that can count for you and I is what? What is the only righteousness that you want to have? Christ. If you go to God because you die this afternoon and you meet him before his throne this afternoon and and you're ready to present him with your righteousness, do you want to show him yours or do you want to show him Christ? You better show up with Christ. You better have repented of your sin and said, God, have no merit to come before you. I come before you purely and completely in the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The the person who is not born again, listen carefully because Paul, Paul taught us something. He said something here about sin. The unregenerate is under sin and it rules. How does sin rule? How does it rule? It's a principle at work. It is a life at work. It's not right to call it a life. It is an active thing in you at work. And it promises comfort 
And if you listen to sin's lure and temptation, you may be offered comfort and so you would obey it. It may promise you honor, appealing to your desire to be honored. It may threaten you with fear. Sometimes a person is in a situation contemplating the gospel and as they contemplate the the claims and the words of Christ, sin may, may whisper to this person that if you go and follow Christ, think of what you're going to lose. Think of the losses that you may lose your job if you decide you're going to follow Christ. Your husband may mock you if you say you're going to follow Christ and leave your sin. Can you can you picture or, or or grasp how it is that sin could threaten you with fear or sin could threaten you with unpopularity. Christians are not very popular and appreciated people in this day and age because we we believe that God has ordained and, and told us to believe and recognize the difference between men and women, for example. If you repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you better agree with God and say what He says. But you might feel afraid. Feel afraid of the unpopularity. Feel afraid of the things you're afraid you would lose. So sin makes you promises. Sin rules. Sin lies. Now this is the worst thing about sin. And Christians need to know this about sin too. Sin lies. Its lies are for your loss. Its lies are for your grief. Sin can be pleasant for a moment. Sin can offer you temporary relief, temporary pleasures, but it lies. Sin might lead you to believe you're in charge. Sin might lead you to believe you can quit whenever you want. You're the one who has the strength. You're the one who has the power. Sin lets its victim believe that its good deeds are spiritual. Sin lets its victims believe that its bad deeds are okay because of God's grace. Sin is a very, very potent and clever debater. Sin gives people dreams to look forward to that have wicked ends to them. Sin gives men ambitions and desires that are designed to destroy them and not give them eternal life. Sin ultimately leads men to their death. It leads men to their death. When I think about the tyranny of sin, I was listening to a sermon a day or two ago about sin. I think all of us knows a person or two or three who are ruled by the tyranny of sin. Ruled by it. And it makes us sad because its grip is very strong. Sin's grip is strong and sin's intent is deadly. I want to encourage you to 
beware of the strength of sin and to beware of the deadliness of sin. Since tyranny is broken by repentance and trust in Christ, right? That's how sin's tyranny is broken. As we recognize the malevolence of sin and the wickedness of sin and the deceit of sin. And we look to and we listen to the sweet promises of peace and hope given to people by Christ. And Christ says, leave your sin. And he says, leave death. Leave death. Come to the end of this life. Come to the end of this age, free of your sin, but a servant of the true master. Take yourself a new master. The Christians in Rome will hear very soon in this letter, hold tightly to your new master, Christians in Rome. The Lord Jesus, he offers you righteousness 100% Righteousness, perfect righteousness is what Christ offers. Those who would follow him. And so the hopelessness of our being enslaved to sin, the hopelessness of having no righteousness being under sin is replaced with the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and offered his righteousness. That's what these dear ones in Rome are in the process of being taught and reminded. The gospel teaches Christians and the gospel teaches non-Christians how everybody is lost in sin. Everybody is a slave to sin until you come to Christ. The gospel teaches us how wicked we are without Christ. The gospel teaches you how deceived your own heart is without Christ. How lost you are without Christ. And don't we all see, I mean, don't we all see the the fingerprints of sin in our hearts? Don't we hear sometimes the whisper of, of sin to our minds reminding us that there are vestiges of, of sin at work in us still. If you're a Christian, it's, it's working against you. But you know, as a Christian, when you know Christ, you can repent of every one of these sins. You can apply the promises of God to these things that sin would whisper to you. So hear the Lord's Careful exhortation warning you and I to flee from sin. That's what we're reading about here in Romans chapter 3. Sin creates destruction. Sin creates unrighteousness. Sin is tyranny. And the Lord carefully warns the unbeliever to flee from this. He carefully warns believers, understand how lost you were without Christ. Know how lost you were without Christ. The Son of God left heaven to speak to you these words of life. And one of the things I I pity 
is what resists the message of the gospel. My own pride will resist the truth at times. So when you're thinking about somebody that you want to share the gospel with, when, when there's a person you're speaking with, please be praying for them. Pray that their pride would be broken down. Pray that the ignorance that is in them, this is what it says, there's none who understands. We're, we're not arguing with people who understand. We, we can share the gospel with people. We can plead with them to turn to Christ for forgiveness. We can plea with them to believe what we speak about sin and to turn to a new master. Don't live under that tyrant sin. It does not have to be anybody's master. Anybody can leave. But repenting of their sin and turning to Christ and taking his yoke upon you and be free from your sin in Christ. Let's pray for a minute. Oh, great God, we we love the gospel, Lord. Know the darkness of the dark, the wickedness and the lostness of being lost. We hate, God. How I pray that you would magnify the, the words of Christ in our own minds. Help us to understand the gospel more and more, mighty God. Lord, help us to be ready with the word of the Lord Jesus on our mouths, I pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to read to you one of the last lines in the book of Romans here. It's from Romans 16. 